This podcast has been sponsored by Meiraki Candles. The meaning of Meiraki is to do something with soul, creativity or love and to put something of yourself into your work. The name could not be more fitting. Meiraki Candles is a small startup business which grew out of a lockdown hobby just six months ago. Owned by Sapna Nikaya Basi, 25-year-old digital marketer, Meiraki sells hand-poured affordable vegan candles perfect to gift yourselves or loved ones. Using only soy wax, which means these candles burn with zero black soot and are biodegradable, meaning Meiraki candles are eco-friendly. Products range from stylish black oud collections to floral tins and mini shells in some of the most popular candle scents such as citrus, lavender, vanilla and Sapna's personal favourite, cherry blossom. For further information, check out the link in the description or search Meiraki candles on Facebook and Instagram. Hi guys and welcome to hashtag life of a surveyor. As you've heard in the sort of intro bit, this podcast has been sponsored and it's one of the first sponsors I've ever had for the podcast. So um, massive, massive thank you for Mayraki Candles for sponsoring the podcast. And I will be going into a bit more detail about why I've chosen them to sponsor the podcast and how they sort of relate to this particular podcast episode. It's been a while since I've done a, done another episode, so apologies for the delay. It's It's been genuinely manic at work and trying to multitask all my sort of involvements and things that I'm doing, including the charity Bojandan. And also with recently becoming chartered, I've now become an RICS mentor for other people who are going through their APC. So if you're one of those people who are going through their APC and need a mentor or someone to just guide them through the process or just someone to sort of talk to about the whole process and how it all works, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram, LinkedIn, you know, just search hashtag life of a surveyor and all my contact details will be there. And if you go onto my Instagram, all my links should be there as well. So um, yeah, that, that's, that's the sort of latest thing on my sort of personal updates really. So yeah, it, it's, it's all sort of kicking off and, you know, trying to sort of try and fit in some time to record more episodes. And it's, it's it's quite a time-consuming thing, and I know there's people out there doing sort of weekly episodes and stuff, but, you know, they, they've got all the kit and all the support there, and I'm sort of doing it as a one-man band, so preparing for what I'm going to say, recording the podcast, which in itself is a bit of a challenge, because I live in quite a family-orientated residential estate, and, um, you know, trying to find peace and quiet where there's no background noise to try and record this episode it's quite difficult so what I tend to do is try and record it at night when all the little brats have gone to sleep so uh, I'm sure I can say that can't I <laughs> said it anyway so yeah so trying to record it in peace and quiet is a challenge in itself and then editing it you won't realize this but the amount of times I say um in each recording is unbelievable you might not hear a lot of them because I end up deleting half of them and it's about 20 minutes of me just saying um on every single recording and it's it's really frustrating because I have to listen to what I've said but every other word is um 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 and having to edit that out it takes so long it takes about two to three hours for me just to edit a single episode and you know the episodes are anything between half an hour to an hour well I'll try and keep it below an hour if I can but yeah it's, it's quite time consuming so you know if there's any professional editors out there or anyone that's willing to help me edit the podcast and stuff and wants to get involved reach out to me because uh, your help will be massively appreciated. But without any further ado, let's crack on with the episode. So 
In this episode, we're looking at what you should be looking out for if you're looking at taking on property as a tenant. Now, during COVID, there's been quite a lot of small businesses open up, people working from home and, you know, people that have been furloughed have started up small businesses and a lot of these businesses have started to take off. And Meraki Candles, for one of them, is, 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 is actually one of them that has, you know, is becoming successful. And I urge you all to go and follow on Instagram and Facebook and support the small business. I've bought a candle from them and it wasn't gifted or anything. I've actually paid money for it and it's great. So, you know, it's it's a light at the moment while I'm recording this and it's just relaxing and it's a nice, nice oud scent, which is quite nice. Please do check it out. So the reason I chose them to sponsor the podcast is because they're a small business and I can see them becoming a large business in, in, in due course. And, you know, the, the way that their business is expanding, I can see that at some point they will require either a retail space to trade out of or if they want to stay solely online, they will need some sort of storage space. So at the moment, it's very much sort of home-led, out of the kitchen, out of the garage sort of thing. But if all goes well and it sort of carries on with its success, I can see them needing a um, small warehouse space to start with and maybe even growing that even further in due course. So it, it's it's one of the reasons I've sort of chosen them for this week's episode to, to, to incorporate them because I can see them coming to me at some point wanting to acquire new premises and I'd be more than happy to help them do that and find in them whatever they require. But that kind of ties into tenant selection and the code of leasing business premises and, and you know, covenant strength and, and what you should be looking at getting into your your, your legal documents, you know, your, your, your lease or your license or your license to alter, license to occupy and stuff like that. And it does need solicitor's involvement so they can advise you on the right way to document it and what, what route to go down. But go back to a few of the episodes that I started off with, it tells you the difference between a lease, a license, what should you use to, to occupy premises and what's the difference and what are the risks. So have a listen back so you get a better feel of what the differences are. So I won't be going into the differences between leases and licenses too much. But one thing I would reference to is the Code for Leasing Business Premises 2007. Now, it's um, somewhat dated, but it's still referred to in practice. Mandatory professional statement for leasing business premises by the RICS. The aim of the code is to help the commercial property industry achieve efficiency and fairness in the landlord and tenant relationship. And um, in accordance with sort of government objectives, trying to increase flexibility and greater choice in the commercial leasing market. Now, what does that mean? Well, it relates to all new lettings in England and Wales, right? The code is divided into three sections. The first being the landlord code, which sort of looks at recommendations to landlords for negotiating a new business tenancy and I'll go into those in a, in a bit more detail in a minute. The second part is an occupier guide and this sets out advice for prospective tenants on how to negotiate terms for new commercial premises and there's sort of tips and practical advice to assist the tenant which sort of highlight the risks and kinds of questions that tenants should be asking. So, so I'll go into a bit more detail on that shortly. And then the third part, which is quite useful and we should all be using it, it's the model heads of terms. Now, for those of you who don't know what heads of terms are, that is the sort of agreed terms that you would give to your solicitors to say, look, 
I've negotiated this deal with the landlord or their agent, or my agents negotiated it on my behalf. It will be the same heads of terms, which will be the agreed heads of terms, which will go out to both parties solicitors. So you as a tenant and the landlord solicitor will get exactly the same copy of those agreed heads of terms. Now, those heads of terms are not legally binding. So you can put something in there and it could all change when you come down to drafting your actual lease or your license. So just be aware that even though they're agreed heads of terms, it's down on paper, you've both agreed it, it might change when it comes to documenting this new lease. Now, for simplicity, I will refer to any new transaction as a lease because I don't want to confuse things with lease and the license at the moment. So we'll, 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 we'll talk about just leases if we're taking a new lease on a commercial property. Now, I mentioned the professional statement for leasing business premises. Now, this should be available on the RICS website. If you can't find it, drop me a note, reach out to me and I will send you a copy. So the first part is the landlord's code, the first section. And as I mentioned, this is recommendations to landlords and tenants for negotiating a business tenancy. And there's a few sort of points that it sort of discusses and they're, they're pretty useful. Now, I'll, I'll just be going through them in a sort of very basic summary, but the code actually goes into it in a lot more detail. So lease negotiations is one of the first things. Landlords need to promote flexibility and um, they must state whether alternative terms are available and they must propose rents for different lease terms if requested by prospective tenants. So what does this mean? The landlord can't say to you that I'm getting X rent here, therefore I'm going to charge you X rent for this property, for the subject property that you're trying to take. So what do you do? Well, your agent or whoever you've instructed to find you a property, if you have, if you have instructed an agent that is, should be advising you what the market rents are. If they're not, what you need to be looking at is what sort of rents are neighbouring occupiers paying? Now, there's nothing to stop you from going into, let's say you're trying to get a retail shop. You can go to your neighboring shop of the subject property you're trying to take a lease on and ask them straightforward. I'm interested in taking the property next door. I'm interested to see what you're paying and when did that lease come into effect? Because if they've been there for say 30 years and they've got a straight 30 year lease, I know they're not likely to have a straight 30 year lease with no breaks, no, no rent reviews, nothing. And their rent was, you know, let's say a thousand pounds. It's very unlikely that the terms and the rent will be that at that level, 30 years down the line, the market has changed and it will change and it's always changing. And it's very specific and objective to what individual tenants require. And it, it kind of goes into a little bit of the valuation side of things. And it's, 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 it's an art where you're sort of trying to work out what the value of a property is and what it's worth to you. So if there's, let's say a high street property, prime location, lots of footfall, Perfect, perfect, perfect for your business. Perfect, perfect, perfect for your requirements. Has everything you could need. However, the rent is ridiculous because it's perfect. And depending on your circumstances and what it's worth to you, obviously it's worth a lot more to you because it's perfect, perfect, perfect. Do you go in and say, I will pay above and beyond what they're asking for? Or do you go in and say, I will pay the market rent? Or do you try and negotiate and get the best deal you possibly can? Well, again, that is the art of negotiation. So. 
main thing is you don't need to let the landlord know or their agent know that it's perfect 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 don't let anything on because if they know that you're really keen to take that property and it's exactly what you've been looking for they will try and get the rent as high as possible because they know that you want that property whereas if you try and play it cool and you know try and bluff it a little bit you might get away with a slightly lower rent so you need to sort of strategize how you want to go in with the sort of rental value so that's something to think about and the rent isn't just the only thing that you need to think about it's it's other lease terms as well and all these lease terms need to be put in writing to the landlord so the other lease terms would be what is the lease length you know what can you commit to are you in a position to commit to a five-year lease are you in a position to commit to a three-year lease or are you in a position to commit to a five-year lease with a break at year three to see how you're getting on or do you not know how it's going to work i mean if you're a new business and you're, you're this is your first property you're taking on you might not know how it's going to go the times are so strange right now that you know there are new businesses popping up but they're shutting down just as quickly and then there's existing businesses that are shutting down as well so you know, it's, it's very difficult to see where you'll be in, let's say, three years time. And obviously you'll reflect on your business plan and stuff to see what your forecasts are and what, what, what you can and can't do and what you can commit to. But hopefully your business plan and your forecasts show a steady growth and that does happen in reality. So you can probably commit to a longer term. So if in doubt, incorporate a break into the lease and Landlords don't like breaks because it doesn't give them that certainty that they'll have that rental income beyond the break. So for, for a landlord, they'll be thinking, OK, so we've got a five year lease signed up. We've got a break at three. If at year three, this business isn't going to survive, I'm only going to get income up till year three. And for valuation purposes, they should only be valuing to that break in terms of investment valuation. But what you need to sort of prove or put into the lease is you can either, well, the landlord has to agree to the break in the first place. So that, yeah, they have to agree to the terms. But what might be a bit more enticing for the landlord is if you do a mutual break option. So what is a mutual break option? Well, the mutual break option is exactly what it says on the tin. It's an option where either you as the tenant can exercise the break so you can walk away from the lease at year three, for example, or the landlord can initiate the break and say, right, tenant, I need the property back. You need to go and find somewhere else at the end of year three. If you have a mutual break, it's sort of a bit of give and take to both parties. So landlords might be more inclined to agree it. If you put in just a tenant break, a tenant only break, landlords might push back on it and need some sort of reassurance, which could be anything in the, in the form of uh, additional security. So they might ask for a higher rent deposit in return for having a tenant break in there. They might ask for a break penalty. So if you exercise your break, you've got to pay, let's say, a year's worth of rent or something. It could be anything. Again, that's a, that's a negotiation to be had. So you just got to bear in mind that you might have these sorts of things that you need to factor in as well. So you might have that break option, but you might have, say, a penalty in there or some sort of condition to say, look, you can only exercise your break if you've paid all your rent to date. There's no outstanding invoices. You've paid all your service charge. There's no disputes. The property's in good repair blah 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 it could be anything so you need to make sure that as a tenant you try and restrict any conditions keep them as minimal as possible if none if you can help it if it's an unconditional break perfect but given that you'll have a low covenant strength as a new business you might have some conditions attached to that break so just be prepared for that and just on the back of that i did mention this the so rent deposits now 
because you're a new company or reasonably new company, you've only been trading a few years, you won't have that covenant strength of say, or obviously you won't have a covenant strength of a major national retailer or something like that, but you won't have that sort of credit rating there to support your business because you haven't been trading for long enough. So you just need to bear in mind that the Dun & Bradstreet check, which is the equivalent of say Experian, Credit Karma and the likes of that, they'll do a credit check on your business. The Dun & Bradstreet check will highlight what your risk rating is and what the maximum the landlord should be sort of lending you inverted commas in terms of rent. So what, what is the maximum you can kind of give to this particular company? Um, and in this case, I mean, it, it reflects what you should give as credit if you're ordering stock and stuff, but you can also apply it to rent. So it will give that sort of rating to the landlord. So they'll have an indication as to what sort of company you are, what your strengths are, what your covenant is and what they should be doing um, just to sort of have some sort of security for them should your business not work. So just be aware that the landlord might ask for a tenant deposit, some other form of security, could be a bond, anything, it could be anything. So you just gotta make sure you've factored in and accounted for some sort of contingency should the landlord request it. So rent deposits we've talked about and also guarantees, they might ask you to have a guarantor on board. Now that could be the backing of another business or a bank or someone or a lending facility, or it could be a personal guarantee. So. If your business does go bust, the landlord is able to come after you and your personal possessions, so your house, your car, etc., etc., should the business fail and you can't afford to pay or business can't afford to pay the um, the rents and the um, the sums due under the terms of your lease. So just, just be aware that the landlord might ask for a personal guarantee. Where possible, try and avoid this because that's putting your own life possessions at risk. So try and avoid giving personal guarantees if you can, but it's something to think about. And also you need to think about if there's any release mechanisms for that rent deposit. So one of the things that get negotiated on leases I've worked on is that if your turnover reaches a certain level, say two times, three times your rent, then there's a provision in the lease which says once your turnover reaches that state, you can get a part of or all of your rent deposit back. So say your rent is £10,000 per annum and there's a clause in the lease which is if, you, if your turnover reaches three times the rent, you can get your rent deposit back. So once your turnover is £30,000, you can apply to the landlord, say, listen, landlord, here's my, here's my accounts. I've been turning over £30,000 for the last few months, few years. It's been constant and it's growing, growing, growing. Can I have my deposit back? They can't refuse that. As long as it's in the lease and that's what's been negotiated and the mechanisms there in black and white, they can't refuse that. So if you can, try and negotiate that into the lease as well. Now, one of my favourite topics, rent reviews. I've discussed rent reviews on a previous podcast, the different types and different methods and the sort of different ways you can do a rent review. Have a listen back to see what are the best ones. So is it a straight open market rent review, an index link review, stepped rent? Take a look because that's all in the previous episode. So you'll be able to see what works best for you. Now, what I would suggest is if you can get an assignment clause in your lease, which means that leases would allow tenants to assign the whole premises with the landlord's consent, not to be unreasonably withheld or delayed and not refer to any specific circumstances for refusal, that would be beneficial. Because what does that mean in layman's terms? Well, that means your lease that you'd negotiate at the start is still in effect, but it gives you the opportunity to assign it to another person or another business. So 
let's say you've taken a warehouse space, you've taken a five-year lease and two years down the line, it's not worked out. You didn't scale up your business as much as you thought. You've got too much space and you need to offload the property. You can't afford to stay in there anymore. And you want to get rid and there's no break option. You've got another three years in your lease because your lease expires for five years. You've got no other option and you don't want to go bankrupt or anything. So what can you do? Well, if you've got an assignment clause, you can try and find someone who's interested in taking that space, who needs that space, can take on that space for the terms that are referred to in your lease. So make sure they can afford the rent, etc., etc., and they can carry on for the next three years or whatever. Then you can assign that property. You apply to the landlord and say, landlord, I would like to assign my property to this person or this company. Here's their details. Here's their accounts blah, 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 can we go ahead and do it? Now you will be liable for the costs of assigning and you might also need to enter into something called an AGA. Now, what is an AGA? It's an authorized guarantee agreement. What does that mean? Well, if the new tenant is of a lower financial standing than, your, than the assignor, i.e. you, or is a resident or registered company overseas, you might have to sign up to an AGA, which means that if they fail to comply with any of the covenants in the lease, the landlord can come after you as the assignor and, and basically pursue you to fulfill those covenants in the lease. So let's give a real time example. Let's say the assignee, so whoever you've given that lease to for that warehouse, let's say they can only afford to pay half the rent and that's what they're doing. They're paying the landlord half the rent because that's what they can afford. The landlord can then come after you for the other half. So you kind of need to make sure that when you're negotiating terms for a new lease, you can try and avoid the requirement of an AGA as a tenant. Landlords will always insist on it because it gives them additional protection. So just something to be aware of when you are negotiating. And sometimes a rent deposit should be accepted as an alternative. So you might not have to have an AGA in place, but you have a rent deposit in place instead. But again, you have to decide that at the outset when you are agreeing heads of terms, you can't then do it retrospectively to say, we're not gonna have an AGA, we'll have a rent deposit instead. I mean, you could, and then you can do a deed of variation, but normal protocol is to decide all of this at the start of the lease. So you know what you're in for and you don't really want to be getting involved with deeds of variation, trying to vary the lease, the terms of the lease and getting legal costs involved for that. It could be very expensive to make one change. Now we spoke about assignment. What about subletting? So do you want to include a clause which says you're allowed to sublet? So if you take on, let's say 10,000 square feet of warehouse space because that's what you think you'll need but then a year down the line you're only using about 5,000 square foot if you've got a subletting clause that says subletting is permitted you could potentially sublet that 5,000 square foot space to another person or a company now that obviously means that the sublet uh, needs to be permitted landlord needs to consent to it not to be unreasonably withheld or delayed but also the sublease rent should be the market rent at the time of the subletting as well so there can be times when you make a profit rent, which means your sublease is for a higher rent than you're paying. So let's say you're paying £10,000 a year for a 10,000 square foot unit. I know it would be great if that was reality, but it's not. And you're charging your subtenant for the sublease, who's taken that 5,000 square foot excess space, charging them £20,000. Again, that's great if we can get it. You're making a profit rent of £10,000, which you can put into your pocket. You don't have to pay that to the landlord. You only pay the £10,000, which is in your head lease. So um, you could be making some money there. But again, it need, you need to make sure that it's drafted in a way that is permitted under the terms of the lease and you don't have to pay anything to the landlord. So seek legal advice on the best way of wording it.
so that you don't have to pay anything back to the landlord. Now, service charges. Landlords need to provide best estimates of service charges and other outgoings. So this would include a service charge budget. So they need to pro provide you with a budget beforehand to say, look, these are the services I'm going to be providing you with under the terms of the lease. And this is what it will cost you. This is what your apportionment will be. Now, one thing to look out for, and I think I have done a segment before um, on the podcast about service charges in particular on what you can and can't claim and what you should sort of try and restrict and sort of avoid if you can. So have another listen back to previous episodes on service charges. Now, another thing landlords need to do is state whether VAT, value added tax, is payable. Obviously, if you're in the UK, that applies to you. If you're listening elsewhere, it's not applicable, but check your local taxation. Another thing you need to look out for is the repairing obligations. Now, this kind of ties into service charges. What are the repairing obligations and who should be responsible for them? So you'll have common areas, which the landlord should be repairing and maintaining. So that will be sort of shared corridors, shared service yards, shared access roads, etc., etc. And then depending on what sort of lease you have, if it's an internal repairing only lease, then you're only repairing the inside of the property. If it's a full repair and insure, you have the liability of the roof, the structure, everything. But again, try and see what you want to have included in your lease. What do you want the responsibility for? Anything you don't want responsibility for, the landlord might be able to claim it on the service charge. So it's not a case of, it's not my responsibility. I don't have to worry because it might well come back to you via the service charge. So you might well have to factor in those costs anyway. And also what should the condition of the property be in at come the end of the lease? You know, you need to factor that into the lease as well. Do you want to enter into a schedule of conditions so you don't have to give the property back in any worse condition than it already is in? And you document that by a schedule of condition. Again, I've spoken about this in previous podcasts, so go back and have a listen, but a way to sort of limit your liability is to agree a schedule of condition, which is basically a document con containing description and photos of the condition of the property. So you walk around the site and let's say there's a broken window or a crack on one of the windows, take a photo of that. And there you go. That window had a crack in it. When I took it on, I don't have to repair that window come the end of the lease. Just something to look out for when that does happen. And it protects your position at the end of the lease with dilapidations. And I'll be doing a sort of a, another episode on dilapidations in due course. So look out for that. So at the end of the lease, tenants should only be obliged to hand back the property in the same condition as they were in the start of the lease, otherwise, uh, unless otherwise expressly stated in the heads of terms. Again, like I mentioned, just make sure that that's expressly stated in the heads of terms. Now, the final one is insurance. The only thing I would point out is that insurance needs to be fair and reasonable and represent good value for money, if the landlord insures the property, that is. If you're going out and finding your own insurance, then obviously your brokers will do an amazing job in finding you the best deal for what you require, but you do need to make sure that you adhere to the requirements under the insurance clause in your lease, because there might be something that states that insurance needs to be from a certain provider or a certain level or cover certain things. So just make sure that you really, really look into that insurance clause as well. People do just sort of try and push that away and think that it will be fine. Insurance is insurance, but no, it's it's a sort of big thing, big market, lots of things can go wrong and the liability on that is is crazy. So make sure that you do look into it and, and if you've got a broker, make sure they know that these are the, this is the insurance clause in your lease. They need to adhere to that when they go out and find you a quote. 
So that's the landlord's code. What about the occupier's guide? Well, this is the bit that gives you advice on, on various bits and, and what sort of questions you should be asking. Now, we covered quite a lot on the landlord's code and I've, I've sort of said what you should be looking out for on that. But you need to make sure you understand every term and condition in the offer and including the total cost until the end of the lease. A lot of people don't factor this in. And one of the things that I always advise my clients of is that you don't just look at the rent service charge insurance till the end of the lease. That's not what your total costs are going to be. You need to factor in any rent deposit at the start. You need to factor in any break penalty and make sure you budget for that. You need to factor in any premium you might be paying to take on this property. You need to factor in any rent free that you might be getting. You need to factor in any stepped rents, any uplifts in rent that might be coming. If it's index linked, you know how that will work and you can potentially put in a small provision for that because you can sort of take an average of previous year's indexation and see what that will turn out to be. And then the main bit, which is the bit that everyone always forgets about, is the bit at the end. Now, you've taken a lease, you've occupied this property, you've, you've run your business from it, and your lease is coming to an end, you don't want to stay there anymore, you can't stay there anymore because the landlord served you with a section 25 notice, a hostile section 25 notice and said you need to leave until you can't do a lease renewal, so you need to get out. Now what? Well, guess what people? The landlord's going to come after you. Why? I don't have a lease with them anymore. Well, the terms of your lease said that landlord can claim dilapidations. What is dilapidations? Well, this is when the landlord goes in, inspects the property and makes a list of anything he can find wrong with the property. Now, this could be anything small as a scratch on the wall to something major like the whole roof needs to redoing. So it just depends on what sort of things they find, what their liability is. Now, dilapidations is a massive, massive thing. It can be something that you never even think about, you never even budget about. Now, I've, I've had a situation recently where it's a small tenant, she runs a cafe and I'm the landlord and I've gone out and served a schedule of dilapidations on her. Now, the tenant didn't know the process. She wasn't advised at the outset from her solicitor or her agent when she took on the lease. And we've served her a claim of, let's say, around about £30,000. Uh, because that's what we can claim under the terms of the lease. Now, you can only make a dilapidations claim on the loss that you have made as a landlord. So you need to prove what losses you've made. So there's two things you can do on dilapidations. You can either A, do the work stated in the schedule of dilapidations to the landlord's satisfaction, or you can agree a financial settlement. Now, there will be costs that are submitted with the schedule of dilapidations. Now, as I mentioned, the first set of costs that we did in the schedule of dilapidations we served on the tenant were about £30,000. The tenant then came back and said, no, I've done this, this, this and this, and I'll be doing this, this, this and this. And then we, we went and re, re, revisited the schedule and said, OK, right. So you've said this, this, this is this. We've said this, this is this. The difference is this. And that £30,000 claim went down to about £11,000. And all the fees and costs and everything are included in this, by the way, for preparing the schedule, serving the schedule, legal costs, um, professional costs, everything is in there. And it also means that any documentation, any planned preventative maintenance documentation, any um, EPCs, uh, any fire safety certificates, asbestos surveys, etc., etc., all of that is included within that. So you either need to provide the landlord with that documentation, which you should have anyway, because it's all basic health and safety and you should be having that as your due diligence anyway. 
um, and as an occupier. But if you don't, they can charge you for it. So just be aware, you need to provide the landlord and do a proper handover of all your property documents for, for what you've got in there. So say you've put in a um, fire alarm, for example, or there was one already and you've been maintaining it because that's something. Um, your responsibility unless the landlord does it you need to be providing proof to say that it's been maintained throughout the, the term of the lease so there's a lot of that and like I said there's 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 potential for you know the dilapidations claim to be huge I mean you can potentially go from there's a missing roof tile to you need to relay the whole roof and again you need to instruct the building surveyor to act on your behalf to argue the dilapidations claim not argue but defend the dilapidations claim so there's, there's a lot that could be associated with dilapidations and you need to have a significant chunk of money put aside for the end of the lease it's not just your rent service charge and insurance for the duration of the term there's a lot that goes on in the beginning and the end of the lease as well so make sure you do factor that in and budget for it so making sure you understand every term and condition in the offer and the total cost until the lease end and make sure that the offer clearly shows the extent of the property. So you need to make sure that the boundaries are clearly marked and the floor areas are noted and any access rights. A lot of the times you don't think about this, but have you got rights to put a bin in the service yard? You know, one of those industrial dumpsters. Most of the time, no. And the landlord can come and tell you to move it. Where are you going to put all your rubbish? Well, you've got nowhere because you don't have any rights to put anything anywhere. So you need to make you need to think about every little thing that you are going to do. You know, are you going to have a baler on site? Are you going to need power to that? Is the power going to be fed from your supply or a landlord supply? What, you know, what's going to happen? Do you need rights to access the service yard from an access road, an entrance road? Is, can you pass on it with vehicles, pedestrians? You know, can your customers park in a shared car park? That's one of the things that you know, people never think about. So you need to include all of that in there. And, and if you can include floor areas, that's even better. Now, why is that important? Because when it comes to rent review, you're going to be paying rent by square foot. And if you've got a dictated floor area, especially if it's written in the lease, no one can argue the floor area. So you always know what your floor area is. So even if someone goes out on site and measures it and it's, say, 10% higher than what's stated in the lease, they have to go by what's stated in the lease. Now, one thing that rarely happens, and I've not seen this to date, but a tenant should ask the landlord or their agent to confirm in writing that the offer meets the lease code. Now, sometimes agents get away with this by putting it in the small print, but a lot of the times it's never mentioned. So it's always good to sort of get that in there. It gives you that added protection from the RICS. As previously mentioned, make sure you know when and how you can get your deposit back. Put something in there to, to say that you can get your deposit back after a certain period. Um, and sometimes it might be at the end of the lease. So you might want to decide how soon you can get your deposit back because a landlord or their managing agent might forget about it and their accounts team might forget about it. They'll close down your account and you will never talk to them again. And you'll, you won't lose your deposit because it will be protected, but life goes on and it slips through people's minds and stuff. So what you want to do is come the end of the lease, 10 days, for example, after the end of the lease, they need to give you your deposit back and they should be doing that. Okay. And you might even want to go one step further. How do you want to get that deposit back? Do you want it as bank transfer? Do you want it as a check? How do you want it back? So the more detail you put into a lease, the better, because that kind of covers you for everything. You go in front of a judge and say, look, as per the terms of my lease, it says this. They haven't done this. It's clear as day. It's in black and white. 
no one's going to argue it. So the more information, the more detail you get in the lease, the better the drafting, you're going to be a hell of a lot better off. So those are the sort of things you need to look out for. A few other things that I'd just highlight is the user clause and whether there's any restrictions on the use of the property and make sure that that's in there, what you can and can't use the property for, if there's any specific restrictions. Now, there could be restrictions in the lease, but also when you do your CPSEs, which a solicitor will be doing, so that's your sort of pre-purchase, pre-pre-leasing uh, uh, searches, uh, you might want to check that there's no restrictions on the title of the property as well. So just, just make sure that that is done as well. You need to look at whether you need to agree a license to alter or a license to occupy. For example, we mentioned the, the, the bin. Do you need, is that going to be within your demise? Is it going to be outside your demise? Do you need a separate license to alter or a license to occupy for that bin to be placed wherever it needs to be? You know, if you're putting a trolley bay in the car park, do you need a license to occupy for that trolley bay? Uh, do you need a license to alter? Well, yes, you will. You, know, you need to give them all the details of what the specification of that trolley bay is, what your risk assessment is, method statement is, your contractor's insurance, your phasing, you know, when do you plan on doing these works and making sure that it's reinstated come the end of the lease as well. So just make sure that's in there. Are there any planning requirements? You know, if you're going in and taking on a property, you're doing some changes to it, for example, let's say you're going to change the entrance to your warehouse and change the facade of it. Well, that might need to get some planning uh, consent for. So you need to make sure that you apply to the landlord and say, listen, landlord, I'm going to be doing, making a planning application for this. Please consent to it. And is there any objection in you doing so? Yeah, just getting that in there. EPCs. Now, EPCs is a massive thing. Now, I work very closely with a company called Carbon Profile. Um, who do a lot of EPC webinars and I'll put on a link to their webinars. They're free, they're very useful and the information is in a concise and presentable, easy to understand format. Now EPCs is a massive new thing that the government has come out with. It's changed in the last few years, the legislation's changed and the requirements have changed so landlords need to be a lot more careful on this. Now I'll do a segment on EPCs in a future podcast but for the meantime, I'll put in a link to Carbon Profile and their seminars that they do as well. So that's that's kind of it. The, the, the sort of few things that you need to look out for. One of the things that the the the, the professional statement for leasing business premises and the Code of Leasing Business Premises 2007 says and provides is the model heads of terms. These are enclosed as a template for good practice um, and they're very comprehensive and detailed. It's sort of a, just a checklist of points and cover a range of issues, including things like Equality Act 2010 compliance and asbestos register detail, legal costs, dilapidations, collateral warranties and so much, so much more. So you kind of want to refer to those model heads of terms, even if you don't use the whole document, you can refer to them to make sure that any heads of terms that you might be have agreed or are discussing mention all the points that are in there. So um, just, just have a quick look on that. And if you look at modelcommerciallease.com, there is a model commercial lease. So, you know, there's a draft right there ready for you to use. And, you know, you can actually use that as a proper lease for, a, for an actual property. It's a legally binding document. You just need to amend the changes that it highlights to put in to fit your requirements and you're ready to go. Same with the model heads of terms. You can change it to what you need and say, here you go, if it's both agreed, both signed, you can use that as a legally binding document to occupy the premises you're after. 
So um, you could, if you really wanted to, do the transaction yourself. But I wouldn't recommend it. And I would recommend that you get legal advice. So, yeah, that, that's, that's sort of that. Now, one thing that I would talk about in a bit more detail is tenant selection. Now, what does this mean? So, it's important that landlords select their tenants very carefully. And it's an important relationship between sort of the quality of the landlord's tenant covenant and the investment value of a property. So what does that mean? If, let's say, I'm an investor looking to buy or invest into a new property, and let's say, for example, there's a warehouse which has Amazon in it, and there's another property up for sale, same price, same everything. Well, it wouldn't be the same price because that would be nuts. Um, there's another property um, with a sort of um, sole trader in it. Same size property, same sort of condition, same lease terms. It's just one has Amazon and one has Joe Blogs in it. What would I invest in? Hmm. Amazon, right? Yes, because they have that tenant covenant strength. So often landlords will request additional devices for additional security, such as rent deposits and guarantees that would depend on market conditions and the strength tenants covenant. So one of them is rent deposits. Now, rent deposits need to be personal to the tenant, must be legally documented in a rent deposit deed and the money needs to be held in a separate bank account. Any interest earned in that bank account needs to be given to the tenant. Now it could be at the end of the lease um, when they get their deposit back. And there needs to be agreed terms to release the money. And the details of the release mechanism need to be stated in the deed itself. Now, there could be a requirement for a top-up mechanism. So for example, if there's a rent review uplift, there could be a mechanism in there to say the tenant needs to top up their deposit to match the reviewed rent. Um, so it wouldn't just be the, um, the sort of three months, let's say, for example, three months rent deposit, the rent at the start of the lease, it could, your rent could go up by another 10,000, let's say, you would need to top up that deposit to factor that review in as well. But again, this is only if it's specifically stated in the rent deposit deed. Now, the rent deposit deed needs to be attached to the lease as it is a separate deed and it's personal to the tenant. So that means if that rent deposit deed, if you assign your lease, like we've mentioned previously, you would get your rent deposit back. But then there's, there will be a requirement for you either to go into and enter into an AGA for the assignor or the assignor would have to give another rent deposit. So you need to be aware of that. As part of tenant selection, the usual request by landlords is for the following information as a bare minimum. You need a bank reference, an accountant's reference and two trade references. If you've got any previous or existing landlords, a reference from them, ideally. Uh, the landlord would like to see three years of audited accounts, a business plan and a credit rating. So I mentioned Dun and Bradstreet, that would suffice. And the landlord might carry out their own credit search, but you might have to pay for it. So just make sure you're aware of that. You might have to cover the cost of that. Now, you can add to the quality of your covenant by requesting, well, you can't, but the landlord can add to the quality of your covenant by requesting sureties, personal guarantees or rent deposit, which we've talked about previously. And they usually do a profits test. And this is commonly used in that net profit for the proposed tenant's business must be three times the rent for three consecutive years or the net asset value of the business must be 
uh, more than five times the rent. So just just sort of bear that in mind if you are looking to take on property, you need to have that sort of those sorts of accounts built up beforehand and have a good history of being in the black before you do go up to a landlord and say, I need a property. However, that being said, the landlord will always need to consider the level of demand for the property and current market conditions. So you might have some bargaining power, but it's always good to know that, you know, you have something up your sleeve. You've got good accounts, good standard business, good references. You're able to give um, a rent deposit or a guarantee to support your, your your occupancy so just a few things to be aware of from a sort of landlord's perspective and one of the main things that I would look out for and this is critical is if your lease is inside or outside the act now what is the difference well if your lease is inside the landlord and tenant act 1954 that gives you protection in that come the end of your lease, the landlord must renew your lease for a new term to be negotiated. And if your lease is outside the act, they have no reason to renew your lease. So come the end of your lease, they can say off you go. Um, and, and, you know, at lease expiry, you will need to go. So if there is no mention in the lease of it being contracted outside of section 24 to 28 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, then it is a protected lease. So that means you have the protection of the 54 Act, which means that come the end of, the, your, end of your existing lease, you have automatic rights to renew. Now, obviously, you do need to negotiate new terms, but the landlord can't just turn around and say, I need to kick you out. If it's not protected and you're still in occupation, you're technically trespassing. So just be aware of that. If you are in a protected lease and you do stay beyond your lease expiry, um, it would be ideal to get yourself into, entered into a tenancy at will with the landlord, which means that the existing terms of your lease carry on until the new lease is negotiated and entered into, and it gives you the protection of your existing lease terms. So just be aware of that. Okay, so I'm conscious I've been rambling on for quite a while now and um, you're all probably bored of me. I've mentioned all the things quite a bit and uh, a lot of information to take on. So I think I will bring this to an end. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure being back and talking to you about taking on new property. And as mentioned, you know, if you are one of those businesses that are starting up and just kicking off and there is scope for growth, you know, you, you, you're a small business at the moment, working out your home, but you are looking to take on new premises, please do reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to help you out in finding that perfect property for you, negotiating the right terms. And, you know, even if I'm not doing the transaction for you, I'm more than happy to advise you on what you should be looking out for. So um, please do reach out to me if you are looking at taking on some new property. And that being said, once again, I'd like to thank Mayraki Candles for sponsoring the podcast and I wish them all the success in their venture. And hopefully they'll be needing my services real soon in finding of new premises because their business grows so much. So please do check them out on Facebook and Instagram, order from them, help them grow so that I can help them get new property in the near future. Thank you all for listening. Take care. And as ever, please, please, please share the podcast, like it, follow me on Instagram. And if you have any questions, please do reach out. Till next time. Take care.